the deck, Clement gawked at the transformed shoreline of the neighborhood now known as Lakeside. Nobody called it the beaches anymore, because there were no beaches anymore. The neighborhood was originally built on top of a network of underground rivers, and through the 2020s, unprecedented rainfall swelled those subterranean waterways, quietly hollowing out the area's sandy substrate. As the easternmost Great Lake, Lake Ontario experienced the most excess flow, regulated by the Moses Saunders Dam between Cornwall, Ontario and Messina, New York. Except that Lake St. Louis, where the Ottawa River meets the St. Lawrence, floods at a 10 to 1 ratio with Lake Ontario. A one-foot drop near Toronto means a 10-foot rise near Montreal, along with swaths of fragile Quebec agricultural land and New York's overburdened river system. In 2026, the American government refused to permit any drainage, and the Prime Minister, already facing a shaky re-election bid, chose to protect Montreal over Toronto. Most of the city's homes were far enough from the lake to survive the flooding, but in the beaches, the loosened substrate dissolved, and the neighborhood sank into Lake Ontario. This is Spacing Radio. We are hiding from security drones in the broom closet of Serenity Condos, 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we introduce you to some of the minds behind Spacing's new book, Toronto 2033, 10 short stories about the city's future. We talk to Zainab Amadehe about her story, Cracks, Ilan Maste about his story, Puck, and Carl Schrader about his contribution, The Ravine. But first, Jim Monroe was the editor of the book. He's a Toronto-based science fiction author, community organizer, and Spacing contributor, and he's going to walk us through the process of creating a collaborative vision of Toronto 15 years into the future. Stand by. So, Jim, thanks for doing this. No problem. Uh, first of all, can you kind of walk me through uh, the beginning of your involvement in this project? Sure. Um in some ways, uh, the project began close to 15 years ago when, uh, when Matt uh, asked to, uh, to uh, print uh, one of my stories about, uh, I believe it was Kensington Market in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was uh, written as part of a fly poster campaign we did to protest some of the gentrification that was happening there. Uh, a bunch of uh, science fiction writers uh, went around uh you know, sticking these uh, stories of a, a speculative future, or dystopic version of the market on onto uh, poles in the market. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he en- he enjoyed that story, and uh, we knew each other from the zine community and such. So, 
Uh, he asked to print it in, in spacing. And uh, so when he had this uh, rather brilliant idea, I think, of, of uh, looking forward instead of looking backward uh, at uh, uh, the last 15 years uh, of, of spacing's uh, existence, um, it was, uh, uh, yeah, he had the idea to uh, put a collection of short stories together and uh, he asked me to edit it. Mm-hmm. And what was the process of uh, finding the writers like? Uh, because it is a diverse array of uh, all kinds of people from the city. Uh, can you tell me about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was really important to me that uh, not only did we find really good quality writers, but also I had a selection of writers that reflected the, the diversity of Toronto and the mix. Uh, that is, is such a huge uh, part, maybe the most defining aspect of the city. So, uh, and for me, I'm I've. Uh, been very uh, interested for years in seeing, you know, cultural production of all sorts um, uh, being diversified. And and, uh, uh, and and so for me, uh, it was a great opportunity to start sort of like, you know, hitting up um, my network, but also my network's network, um, looking specifically for people that weren't, you know, white straight males writing science fiction, mm-hmm. which is um, sometimes if you don't look too hard, uh, the first people you hit when you throw a stone uh, in the in the science fiction community. So right, yeah. Uh, and then from then you sort of had a, a a boot camp or a series of meetings. You you had experts, futurists, uh, uh, people who work in uh, the environmental sector, uh, all kinds of things. Kind of, uh, I, I guess you pose them with a question: What should we realistically be worried about in in fifteen years? Fifteen years, not crazy far into the future. It's kind mm-hmm. of a uh, a reasonable time frame to to look into. Uh, so, can you tell me about that? How, how did you start breaking these ideas down? It was one of the great things with being able to do this with spacing was that uh, there's such a good uh, array of uh, smart thinkers in so many different uh, realms here. So, um, so yeah, we got a, a bunch of folks that were uh, fantastic uh, to sort of almost like brief us uh, to a certain extent on where they. Uh, thought things could plausibly go. And then as, uh, you know, speculative writers, we sort of, you know, quiz them and ask them a variety of questions and then sort of bounced ideas back and forth amongst ourselves um, to the point where, uh, you know, we were able to hammer out two or three kind of elements uh, that we decided were kind of interesting elements to to sort of share amongst our stories um, because each of these stories have been written specifically for this collection so they're brand new so they were written uh, in the last uh, in the last couple months um, and uh, people had that I guess design session and that brainstorming session in the back of their heads when they wrote the stories I wasn't you know we made it clear because we wanted people to feel free to write from their perspective and uh, around the issues that were important to them, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they didn't have to base their story on specific, these specific anchor kind of ideas, um, but, uh, but rather to use them as inspiration, potentially sprinkle them uh, in at some point or not. So it, it was really something that was, was optional. And I was, I was, yeah, I was pretty, I was, I was pretty happy that, a bunch of the uh, a bunch of the writers seemed to find it inspiring in one way or the other, uh, and no one felt too constrained by the idea of it being a, a shared world or something like that. Right. Uh, these stories uh, they still 
Toronto is still at the center and they're still fairly centered in issues that we already experience to a degree. They're just a little exaggerated because it's 15 years in the future, sort of like a black mirror kind of thing. Some of the better episodes of that show are like this, Mm -hmm. but uh, you you never lose the Toronto in these stories. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that was expertly done by you and you and the writers building that world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have, um, a, maybe a, uh, creative bias towards people that are able to write stories that are really well grounded in, in, uh, you know, uh, a space and, or a city, um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, character and, and that kind of thing. So rather than it being, um, super wild kind of like, like space opera mm-hmm. sort of stuff, which, which is fine, but it's just not kind of what this project was about. Um, uh, yeah, I, but at the same time, there's a heist story. There's like, uh, there's, there's uh, mobsters up against uh, an indigenous uh, ravine at one point. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's pretty colorful at the same time as, as, as being um, uh, grounded in, in, you know, a, a very specific uh, a city. So yeah, the, the specificity, I think is what what really enriches the world. Uh, and so who are some of the characters that we'll meet in these pages? Yeah. Um, th- there's, um, and Aldonado's story sort of focuses on the provider. Um, the provider, uh, we learn through the, uh, through the story is a sex worker 15 years in the future. Um, and it's kind of in many ways, um, a kind of utopic sort of, uh, take on it. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, positive uh, changes that have happened uh, in the in the sex worker industry, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and Al sort of uh, sort of was able to sort of weave that together in a really uh, in- intriguing story. Um, there's uh, as I was mentioning, there's a, um, a city planner who's who's being abducted by uh, by mobsters. Uh, one of the characters is. Uh, someone who ends up going to uh, the Black Creek Pioneer Village of the future mm-hmm. um, and uh, has, a, has a little uh, malfunction with, uh, with her, um, uh, her eye-eye, which is uh, um, it's sort of an iPhone of the future, but it's, it's like a, a contact lens. So mm-hmm. uh, she gets hit by some, uh, a blacksmith's uh, uh, spark, and uh, that causes some trouble as well. So, right. Yeah. And tell me a bit about multiversity. Yeah, so multiversity, our strength was uh, uh, sort of came out of how well we worked as a collective. Um, it felt like uh, something more than just uh, something that I was, uh, uh, you know, putting together with Matt. Uh, it felt like there was a, a sort of a dynamic between the the uh, the, the creators uh, and. Uh, for for many years, I've been really interested in this idea of um, combining, um, you know, social change and science fiction. I mean, they're a natural combination uh, in lots of ways because you know it's it's the um, it's a creative spark that kind of gets people thinking about how things could be. Mm-hmm. But I really like the idea of potentially um, the the, uh, the the members of the collective who are the writers of this of this anthology going on to uh, uh, continue to work together to sort of impact and reimagine Toronto uh, in a more uh, direct way, um, even than uh, writing stories. So um, 
so yeah, so we're we're excited about uh, um, yeah potentially kind of um, uh, exploring some of those uh, some of the the ideas in a, in a more real world context. Uh, we're sort of like sort of splicing together kind of activist and and artist DNA to sort of like you know create something new. So yeah, um, we've actually just started uh, a Facebook group. Uh, people can get to by going to uh, multiversityos.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, and we're welcoming uh, science fiction of creators of all of all types, not just writers, uh, and just people who are interested in the intersection of science fiction, Toronto, and uh, and uh, and politics. Right. And so, what do you hope uh, is the reach and the sort of impact of this collection of stories going forward? Well, I mean, the impact of these things is it's really hard to uh, it's really hard to gauge. Um, you know, I, in some ways, there's there's some um, positive uh, aspirational stuff in this book, mm-hmm. um, and some of it is pretty dark uh, when it comes to exploring some of the the impacts around climate change. Yeah, um, we're talking flooding, heat waves. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and you know, it does usually forefront the way that humans, regardless of these things, manage to be compassionate to each other, manage to, to sort of, um, to survive, uh, and sometimes thrive. But, uh, at the same time, you know, we want to make sure that people, uh, don't just look at these things and say, oh, cool, it's the flooded beaches and, Mm -hmm. uh, and take it as icon eye candy, um, but rather sort of, you know, see it as, as like a plausible possibility in the next 10, 15 years and, and do more than, uh, you know, um, you know, buy in, uh, neighborhoods that aren't likely to be flooded. And like, hopefully people can, uh, can think about it, um, as a, as something that's, uh, more of a call to action than a specific, uh, kind of just a fantasy. Okay. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay. Thanks very much. Now, author-screenwriter Zainab Amadahe's story, Cracks, shows us a vision of Toronto where paranoia over immigration has completely taken hold of the city. And yet, it still manages to be a story about healing and traditional practices in the face of an uprooted future. So, Zainab, thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Uh, to start off, uh, some of the stories are kind of whimsical. Some of them are, are very grim. Uh, yours is very chilling in that uh, it uh, it's sort of without giving away too much, but uh, it sort of gives us a version of Canada, specifically the Canadian Border Services, that is more reminiscent of what's happening in the states with ICE currently. So it's we have uh, an example of it, and you know certainly. The Canadian government is no, no saint either. But uh, well, I think that's the illusion: is this idea that Canada is somehow, you know, significantly better around um, these border issues than uh, the U.S. or other countries? And foundationally, I think you know um, 
the same ideas are at play. I mean, the borders where, you know, capitalists can, you know, freely cross borders and go wherever they like in the world. And everybody else has to, um, you know, ask permission and apply and, uh, you know, be basically. And I think, too, it, it very much ties in this whole border control stuff for me. Um, you know, when I think about pre-colonial times and I think about the first peoples, you know, and the relationships of peoples to the land and to each other on this territory, um, we see that borders separate people. We see that borders separate communities, separate families. Um, and all of these pre-colonial relationships that existed across borders, you know, um, I mean, there's significant evidence now that we know that folks from way up north had relationships with folks from, you know, what's now considered to be um, South America. Mm -hmm. And there were trade relationships and there were uh, familial relationships and all kinds of things going on. And all of that has been disrupted. And that whole vision of, um, you know, understanding our relationship to earth and to each other is completely gone now it's all about facilitating the movement of capital and profit making and people who aren't useful to or aren't deemed useful to economies get blamed for everything get shat upon and um, these nations can create all these problems in other parts of the world not take any responsibility for them and then um, you know blame uh, and vilify uh, in, uh, indigenous and other folks that want to cross borders to be safer. Um, I was very much influenced by what's going on now in the United States. I actually was born in the United States, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the Latinx communities there have uh, supported me quite a bit in my learning curve, in my personal development in my development in terms of um, being educated around curanderismo, around the language and the cultures and so forth and so on. And so I felt um, very responsible to um, those communities when I see what's happening down there. Um, but, you know, I mean, again, there's a lot of issues there in, in the story that I kind of touch on, which I thought was very good considering how short the story is. But mm -hmm. we do talk as well about... Um, issues of, of First Nations folks as well, right? And, yeah. and all of that. So, um, and we, we talk about art, um, or I think we kind of illustrate how um, artistic processes can be uh, liberatory processes as well. So Yeah, yeah. and Indigenous healing practices and community yeah. building feature very prominently in the story. Mm. Um, and in a way, would you say that like the story kind of in an unsettling way, but also in a hopeful way, it's your vision of 15 years into the future is kind of comes full circle to right back to the early, you know, violent colonial days uh, that, you know, <laughs> we had these early settlers that came and messed everything up. And then we've had, you know, 150 whatever years of history of Canada, you know, on stolen land, that kind of thing. And now your vision of 15 years in the future is that they're kind of circling back towards that violent colonial attitude, or maybe it never left. Can you speak to that? Well, no, I don't feel that the violence has gone anywhere mm -hmm. um, at all. I mean, depending on which community you're talking about, right? I mean, the violence is always in our face. I mean, uh, the policing issues, the um, uh, the um, poverty issues, which are a form of violence, um, the resource extraction that uh, First Nations communities are always having to deal with and 
the damage that resource extraction has done to the health of individuals and, and all that kind of thing. So the violence is always there for sure. I feel like my story though, even though you've called it chilling and all of that, I feel like it's really hopeful because I do feel like it illustrates how, um, you know, communities can come together and, and build together and develop these relationships with, with each other and with the land that can, uh, that are, again, hopeful practices. Um, I feel like this system that we're living in is self-destructing, quite frankly, and I do feel very hopeful about the future. Um, so I was trying to portray that, that I think that I see a lot of young folks, and I come from an activist background. Um, in fact, I come from an activist family, and I see folks, you know, I've lived, a, I mean, 63, I've lived 63 years. I grew up during the civil rights struggle, the American Indian movement uh, in the States. And, you know, I've seen these times before. My family has seen these times before. And I see, you know, some folks running around, you know, the sky is falling and, and, and getting, um, you know, really nervous and stressed about uh, the future. But I feel like we make the future now. We um, our, our behaviors, our, the way we treat each other, the way we treat the land uh, creates the future. And so we can do that at any time. You know, we can always treat each other well and we can always treat the land well at any time. And I think role modeling that is probably stronger, a stronger way of um, uh, providing people with hope and, and, and options uh, than other types of strategies that people engage with um, in times when they feel fearful and threatened. Healing is a major element of your story. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And uh, as far as the science fiction futurism kind of thing, uh, how did you uh, get involved in that? Well, um, I started learning about healing uh, like most people do, <laughs> um, mainly for myself. But very young, when I was much younger, um, there's a, an elder here in Toronto, Pauline Shirt, a very respected Cree elder, and I was very privileged to. Uh, be an elder's helper with her for a year. She was at that time, well, she's still in the Medewin, but I think she was like a second or third level Medewin. Medewin is um, um, a healing uh, lodge and in, of the Anishinaabe folks, Three Fires, Medewin. And um, so I guess that was kind of my introduction to, I mean, I've always been interested in medical stuff. I was a, a medical technologist for a while. I did. Um, I studied photovoltaic technology as well, which is solar energy technology, and so I've always been this kind of like really curious kind of science science person. But at the same time, um, I was introduced to things that science cannot explain uh, when I started working with Pauline and other healers. After her um, curandurismo, I, I studied curandurismo at the University of New Mexico in the U.S. Curar is the, the verb for to cure or to heal in Spanish. So curandurismo is the art of healing. It's an amazing practice that touches um, and derives from so many practices around the world. Um, it, and you can, you, know, you can look at it from the point of view of there are people who specialize in plant medicines, people who, who specialize in midwifery, folks who specialize in, in structural stuff, so bones and and um, um, those kinds of things they, they had a they understood about the chakra system so the Mayans as far back as the Mayan people knew about the chakra system the cuequejos they used to call it and all of this stuff so my view of the future is 
um, looking at that pre-colonial knowledge, which is incredibly effective and is still being used by people because it's effective. And even though it's been denigrated and ridiculed by, you know, uh, Eurocentric science or uh, allopathic uh, practices, um, it's still very effective and people are still using it. It's still transforming lives and healing people. And so I see, you know, the future is drawing on those knowledges and those practices and bringing them into the future, which is happening in so many parts of the world um, and not here, uh, but as much, not here as much. But um, yeah, looking at those practices and giving them the credit they deserve and, and giving the practitioners the respect that they deserve as well. As well, your stories about societal healing. Yeah, because I think it's all related. I mean, we're all interconnected. We're all, um, I mean, our our healing literally impacts everybody else. I mean, we can see now um, under laboratory conditions, you know, the the idea that they're calling in science the biofield, which uh, other people over the years, over the centuries have referred to as anything from the spirit body to the uh, the light body or whatever, um, but you know we can we can measure these things now and we see how we can impact each other. You and I are sitting across the table. Our biofields are interacting with each other. They overlap each other, and so um, information that I my mind may not even be aware of, um, you know, is being passed between us, and our bodies react to that, even though consciously we're not aware of it, right? So um, for me, that's kind of the starting point in terms of of social healing, and again, relationships being the core of that. So um, there's at some point in the story where I look at the role of, you know, just making friends and getting to know people and how healing that can be to understand each other, to know each other's stories, to be that um, that shoulder, you know, for people to be to lend people that that listening ear. Um, there is some science that will show that you're, there are brain changes when you're just being listened to. Um, so I think you're probably changing my brain right now. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> by listening to me ramble on like this, but yeah. So okay. yeah. Well, Zainab, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for having me. Elan Mastai is a screenwriter and novelist whose film The F Word was set and filmed in Toronto. Spacing subway buttons even make an appearance. He tells us about his story, Puck. Elan, first, thank you for taking the time to do this. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about how you got involved in the project from the start. Sure. I, it was very, um, random. I just got an email and, uh, Jim and Matthew wanted to, to know if I would be interested. And, um, they told me a little bit of what they had in mind and invited me to this session that they hosted where, um, experts in a bunch of different fields, gave a little presentations on their area. So we had someone talking about the environment and artificial intelligence and transportation. We had a uh, reporter who's been covering City Hall for 30 years. They talked about where they see the city going, and I just found it really fascinating. And there was a number of other writers there. Um, 
who'd been invited. And we, after the sort of, it was almost like a, like a symposium uh, wrapped up, we all just sat around and started spitballing ideas and got excited about uh, what I could do with it. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of elements, uh, sci-fi elements or, you know, not, not hard sci-fi elements. This is the distant future. Uh, there's a lot of those elements in play in your story, but the main one is kind of climate change and the way it reshapes the waterfront. Yeah, my um, story is set in, primarily in the beaches, um, the neighborhood that I live in. And uh, last year, you know, the lake levels were very, very high. Um, not as much this this year, but um, I'd been thinking about that. And one of the things I found fascinating about it was people think of it as a climate change issue. And, and, and it is a climate change issue in terms of, you know, as the easternmost of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario sort of absorbs more excess um, water than than any of the other ones, but it was also a political issue because the lake levels are actually um, adjusted at the Moses Saunders Dam, mm-hmm. which is sort of cut between uh, Ontario near Cornwall and upstate New York. And so, um, I love the idea that this was a climate change issue, but it was also po- a political issue. Mm-hmm. Toronto, during a political conflict, could be just left to flood, right. and that was interesting to me um, because so often our inability to grapple with climate change is usually political. It's about will mm-hmm. it's not about ability um and and so yeah now from that point the question of um what would happen to my neighborhood if lake ontario was was allowed to uh flood and to and to just grow and grow you know that's an interesting and kind of fun thing to think about but ultimately you have to find an emotionally compelling reason to tell that story and so um that's I started to think about. Okay, well, what would be an interesting story about people mm-hmm. that that kind of idea could could be a springboard for? And we'll get into the people without too much, of, you know, without spoiling anything. Sure. But, uh, another element uh, that's uh, in your story that's kind of disturbing is uh, you, you talk about a, a sort of Olympic pandemic. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that we, when we, all the science fiction writers and all the writers got together was the idea of, of pandemics. Of course, SARS was very much, has, you know, very much kind of been embedded in the, in the sort of cultural DNA of Toronto. Um, you know, it was scary, but it, it could have been worse. And um, when we think about you know, climate change, we think about globalization, we think about the future to come, we all decided that we, we liked the idea. I mean, not like from a storytelling perspective, yes. not from like a humanity perspective of a, of a, of a pandemic, like a serious one um, that, and we just talked about, you know, we looked at the kind of the timeline and, and we decided that um, the Olympics uh, in Los Angeles in 2028 would be a, a, a terrific place for a pandemic to start and to kind of um, burn out of control. And so, yeah, we, we, we set, I, I liked setting it in the recent past of the future um that i I found that kind of um interesting i like that it haunts both the city and specifically my character Mm -hmm. but that it's not like happening right now it it happened and now um you know there have been consequences emotionally for him uh for him for his family but it's we're in the aftermath of that pandemic right Uh, another sci-fi element that i really enjoyed uh you know currently everything all my friends are talking about is 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 Facebook listening to you? Is your smartphone listening to you? You know, they said, I want to buy a winter coat. And then the next thing they know, there's a push ad on, on Facebook for winter coats on sale. You've taken that one step further, taken it out of the social media realm and put it back out onto the street where vendors on the street can see all your purchasing data and your search history and say, recognize you, you know, with facial recognition technology and say, I bet you want some chocolate. I like, I found that kind of creepy, but in right. a way kind of ingenious too. 
Yeah, well, I like the idea of just the classic uh, kind of cramming together all the sort of paranoia about social media and corporate surveillance and how they're paying attention to all our choices in order to sell us things. Mm-hmm. Um, but cramming that together with just a traditional, you know, boardwalk market. Mm-hmm. You know, you have all the star- stalls, you have the vendors, but I like the idea of that, you know, all the vendors are wearing glasses and they can see, like, they get pings off your phone if you're purchasing history of the sort of air, you know, things you tend to kind of shop for where you make impulsive choices, uh, you know, so that you might be the kind of person who would just buy a chocolate bar because it was next to the register. So they're going to kind of call you out and kind of like usher you over. Um, And, you know, I mean, I I like that idea because, you know, you go, you walk through markets in almost any city in the world and you'll have those aggressive vendors trying to call you over. So I like the idea of combining that with like high tech, you know, um, data trawling, um, sort of the old and and the new kind of crammed together. And to get into some of the character themes of the story, uh, as you said, uh, your your neighborhood of the beaches is uh, in the world of the story underwater. It's now called Lakeside, I think. That's right. It's not called the beaches anymore because there aren't any no more beaches. beaches. Yeah. Uh, so it's this uh, area of Lake Lakeside that is sort of uh, bordered by a, a wall against Queen, uh, Queen Street, this boardwalk that you talked about where vendors uh, hawk their wares uh, the the main character's father has uh, chosen, unlike some of their neighbors that they grew up with, uh, who took a sort of buyout package and moved up the hill. His father has built a replica of of uh, this main character's childhood home on stilts, yeah. right above. Uh, can, can you tell me a bit about this? Is this one character clinging onto the past like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea that, you know, there had been a class action lawsuit, which I'm sure there would be, and you could still own your property, even if it was now, you know, 15, 20 feet underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, and that most of most of the people who didn't just take the buyout and leave the neighborhood built more modern homes, you, you know, but that I felt it said something very kind of uh, visually interesting, but also emotionally interesting about uh, my character's father that he chose to just recreate the same house on stilts above the wreck of the old house. Um, I, I like to find these kind of little visual um, moments and decisions in the story, which tell us all the stuff about who this character is, somebody who, um, you know, quite literally can't let go of the past, but we'll make, we'll, but his, we'll build a replica of it on the wreckage of the old. Mm-hmm. But the same character uh, sort of single-mindedly devotes himself to a way that he thinks will uh, fix uh, all the problems of his past or sort of uh, redeem him. Yeah. I think it's very, look, I, I love writing about the sort of like, you know, near future stuff and all those technology and I find it very fun, but I don't think a, a reader doesn't want to read just a list of cool inventions that I've come up with, whether or not they're grounded in real science or mm-hmm. not. It's got to be a story. And so I, I tried to think of a way um, to write about the place where the changes would be, na- it would be natural for the main character to notice the changes, right? Because if you're, if you live in a neighborhood and you walk through there every day, you don't notice all these changes. Um, for me, so I, I came up with a character who left for school, mm-hmm. left, went away to university and he, he's coming back home and noticing things. Um, but there's a reason why he's coming back home now. And it's because, you know, he has a terrible mistake in his past. One of, one of the reasons why he left home was to get away from it. And so I, I, I like the idea of a character who is coming home and is is a bit stricken by the changes that have happened to his neighborhood, but he's there for a specific reason. And, and it kind of gives the story a bit of mystery, but also kind of a bit of purpose for him. It's not just a guy coming home to kind of like, oh, look how different my neighborhood is. No, he's there for a very specific reason, which, of course, the story um, unravels as, as it progresses. Right, and I, I find it kind of interesting that, uh, you know, he, he does have this nostalgia for the past or this sodage, as the Portuguese might say, 
but uh, it's not for oh i wish my old neighborhood wasn't underwater it you know it's i'm i'm certain that the character wishes that his mother hadn't died in the olympic pandemic yeah. but uh it's it's for just a you know a personal uh, just a moment in his life that he wished he could do over yeah i mean i think that that's a very human thing i mean thinking about the future we often get caught up in and the technological change, that maybe the climate change, how our government will be different, but ultimately people live the same kind of lives. And I wanted to root it in something very simple, which is a regret, a profound regret, a, a decision that he made many years earlier that um, it, that in retrospect is a, was a hinge moment in his life when he wants to try to to make up for, to make better, because he feels like even though he doesn't believe in something like a curse, he feels like nothing's gone right since he made that mistake and nothing will go right until he makes up for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I felt like ultimately the reason I tell stories is to kind of find that, what, what are the relatable feelings that might, that we all, we all have those hinges in our life, which maybe we didn't even realize were going to be so profound, but the years they accumulate weight, whether that's right or wrong, whether we're right, that that was the hinge, it's how we feel. Mm -hmm. And so I want to take a character returning home to, to, to finally deal with the past that he's been running away from for so long. And, and so is that specific personal sense of regret, does that kind of project outwardly onto the world, which is kind of, you know, 15 years later? And there are elements of it that are very grim. I like to think of, the you know, when I'm imagining the future and stories, I try to think about how it will feel for the people in it. I think human beings can get used to anything. Mm-hmm. And sure, there are some grim elements, but I think there's also some fun, cool elements and some stuff that is like, oh, wow, like, is that... What's is that actually going to happen? And other things were like, oh, that's that's actually kind of cool. Um, I like to kind of. I feel that just like right now, if you were to go back fifteen years to two thousand and three, some things would seem very very normal and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I can see that progression. Other things would be kind of a bit of would be a bit of a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like those disjunctures. I think the future never turns out um, to be all one thing or another. It, and so I try to write futures that have, um, that, that are intrinsically human and that I'm writing about them from the perspective of the people who are living in it, not our perspective now. And so there's things they take for granted, just like there's things we take for granted. I mean, we don't all walk around like, you know, we all carry these supercomputers in our pockets, but we don't walk around staring at them because they're so amazing. We walk around staring at them because they're trying to get a better Wi-Fi signal. And so I kind of, I like to take that personal look at things and, and, and I, I don't know that I, I think that it's important to be clear-eyed about what climate change is going to do to the world. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think it's important to remind, remain kind of optimistic about how people are going to respond. Yeah, I mean, you write all kinds of things in different genres, but what, what is futurism, sci-fi, what does that genre allow you to do? Well, it allows me to look, for, look forward. I mean, it's very obvious, but I... I, I can, on the one hand, like it can be hard to write about the present moment because it's like mercury, you know, you try to hold it in your hand and it sort of feels like it slips through your fingers. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you write about the future, you can kind of project forward and think about where we're going uh, as individuals, as a society, as a planet. Um, inevitably, visions of the future are always just reflections of the anxieties of the present. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a fun way to, um, to, to explore that. You know, I think you can exaggerate certain things. I mean, do I actually think that my neighborhood will be underwater in 15 years? I mean, I hope not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, 
I, I did a bunch of research. I, I actually kind of like went into the geology of it and I figured out how it could work. And when you do that, you're like, oh, this is actually way more plausible than I thought it was going to be when I started researching it. Right. I was hoping to discover it actually wasn't as plausible as it is. Uh, it turns out like it could totally happen. Um, but you hope that we're not going to get that far. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes I like to think that when you imagine a future, it, it's to ensure that it won't happen. Well, Elan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. No, thanks. Thanks for uh, having me. Um, you know, I really hope people enjoy all these different kind of visions of the future that we created. I mean, um, it was a super, it, you know, people write about the future and they think of like, you know, hundreds of years in the future. But I love the idea of something as tangible as like 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. I remember 15 years ago. 2003 <laughs> doesn't seem that long ago. 2033 seems like so far away, but it, but it, but it isn't. So to kind of have that textured, emotionally relatable idea of where the city is going. I I was really, I was delighted to be part of this project. Finally, science fiction writer and futurist Carl Schrader tells us about his story, The Ravine, which gives us a glimpse of Toronto wired from all four corners with smart tech while telling a noir-style story of grisly deeds under the cover of night. So, Carl, what stood out for you when you you kind of had experts from various uh, fields to try and give a sense of what 15 years later in Toronto might look like? Uh, What did you take away from that process? Well, it's interesting in in that uh, I'm both a science fiction writer and I have a, a master's in uh, strategic foresight, so I'm also a working futurist. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm used to uh, looking at the future of transportation, the future of uh, uh, you know uh, China and the Arctic and all, all these sorts of things, but I've never actually engaged in uh, an exercise on the future of Toronto, mm-hmm. which is where I live. Right. <laughs> so uh, it it was um, uh, fascinating, uh, exciting, and sometimes alarming to to uh, uh, hear the the things that could and and some of them that absolutely will happen uh, here in Toronto in the next fifteen twenty years. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things in your story, the sci-fi elements are really just a a little expansion of of things that already exist today. Specifically, you talk a lot in your story about the the Internet of Things. Can you unpack what the Internet of Things is for listeners who may not know? Uh, Yeah, the Internet of Things um, is basically sensors, um, primarily sensors, but everything from... um, the uh, strain gauges built into uh, uh, g- bridges to uh, uh, things that record how many uh, uh, um, pop cans there are left in a vending machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, every single one of these little sensors can communicate to the internet, you know, back to head office, as it were, uh, to uh, register the, the, the state of things. It's like a nervous system for... The, 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 the physical world. And we're building that right now. A, a lot of um, companies are uh, uh, sort of dogpiling on this to, to try and build the, the software, the hardware. 
and I'm just assuming that, you know, 15 years from now, uh, these things will be everywhere. They'll be embedded in our shoes uh, so that, you know, when our shoes are wearing out, we'll start getting emails from the shoe company telling mm-hmm. us that we should buy new shoes. And, Great. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, everything will, will, will be monitored in, in this way. And in some ways it'll be wonderful because we'll know in advance if that bridge abutment is about to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, but yes, we'll also be getting emails about our shoes. Right. And uh, so you you take that concept, and in this world, uh, you know, people have smart glasses, kind of sort of like a a better Google Glass, a Google Glass that perhaps actually catches on, uh, where people can look at the city in various different ways. Uh, they can they can see, uh, you know, all sorts of things. The layout of the city. They can see maps. They can see water lines. They can anything they want. Uh, it also kind of brings in uh, the idea of a sort of surveillance state. But you turn that surveillance state on its head where these uh, the main characters of the story are criminals and they are able to actually tap in and see exactly where these security cameras are and they can find a, like a dark spot uh, to commit their devious deeds. That's right. Um, uh, one thing, uh, you want a business model for this. Uh, imagine uh, taking all the city planning uh, information from City Hall uh, and uh, architects' renderings and so forth uh, and... Uh, uh, creating 3D models of the, not the condos that are there, but the condos that are going to be built or the mm-hmm. condos that are planned to be built so that you can walk around your neighborhood wearing these glasses and look around and see the city that will be here five years from now. So if you were going to buy a house, you could walk through the neighborhood and say, oh, I'm not sure I want to buy a house with that about to be built in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, these glasses allow you, uh, uh, you know, pollution overlays to see which part of town uh, has the most auto pollution. They, the, they, they, they could track things like uh, when the the uh, the sewage pipes were last, uh, you know, repaired. Uh, so immensely useful. But but yeah, I as, uh, you know assume that uh, if. The good guys are going to be using them. The bad guys are going to be using them too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an overlay, for instance, uh, as I call it, um, uh, uh, an app basically to tell you where all the police cars are. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, when there are none nearby, well, that's your moment. <laughs> yeah. And uh, how much of this technology is already available to us, if not commercially, then at least, uh, you know, uh, if I walk into MIT or something, can I can I play around with some of this stuff? I'd say that pretty much everything that I describe in the story uh, exists now mm-hmm. um, in uh, pieces. It's just ubiquitous. Uh, yeah. Well, but, but what hasn't happened is that it hasn't been all put together mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, integrated. So um, there are sort of primitive smart glasses out there. Uh, some of them are pretty good. They, they, they've got about the heft of normal glasses. They don't look like you're, you've strapped a bowling shoe to your head or anything like that. Um, uh, but they have no internet of smart glasses to report back to yet. Right. So uh, all that really uh, has to happen is all of these things have to be connected and the apps have to be built and the, the graphics have to be designed and, and things like that. Uh, I could ask this about a lot of the book's contributors, but uh, specifically for you, I want to ask how much of your story was 
or, or this world building uh, was sort of inspired by uh, the Sidewalk Labs proposal, this sort of idea that Google is going to build a, a super neighborhood that's all interconnected and, you know, it's going to be taking data about every relevant thing. And, you know, some people have heralded as, well, this is the city of the future. And uh, some people have uh, brought up uh, privacy concerns. What's going to happen with that data? Is that really, do we really want that much corporate influence in the, you know, the creation of our neighborhoods? Uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Uh, all, all government, uh, you know, <laughs> all, all government failings aside, just the the concept of that. Yeah, uh, the Sidewalk Labs is is basically just an instantiation of the Internet of Things future that uh, that we've been talking about. Um, there's nothing in it that I find sort of surprising or innovative in terms of, uh, you know, the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's new for Toronto, but it's, uh, it's certainly a vision that's been around for uh, a long time. But like a lot of technological visions, um, it has floated in its own sort of fantasy world without having to connect with reality. Here in Toronto, it has to connect with reality. And the primary reality that it has to connect to is our own individual personal need for privacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as we're discovering, um, uh, we don't buy and sell with money anymore. We buy and sell with our personal information. It's the most uh, valuable thing that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Sidewalk Labs, uh, along with a lot of other similar initiatives simply wants to us to give that information away. Right. Um, so uh, it, it's again, not a technological challenge for the, for the city. It's a political fight that citizens are going to have to wage mm-hmm. over um, uh, ownership of their own data. But that's part of a much larger, uh, broader fight that uh, we have to uh, uh, undertake with, uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, uh, Apple, uh, all of the big technological giants. And it's not just local, it's it's everywhere. As well as our technological future, your story also touches on our sort of societal future. Specifically, you, you address uh, what may be uh, the future of... Uh, you know, uh, sovereignty claims, uh, you know, indigenous truth and reconciliation. Can you talk a bit about that and how, how you explored that aspect of the world? Yes, uh, the, the the ravine is um, uh, the third or fourth story that I've written um, that actually explores these issues. Uh, there's a, a kind of thread running through um, uh, my recent work. Uh, so a story called Eminence, uh, um, published last year, and uh, um, Degrees of Freedom, which was published in the Hieroglyph uh, Anthology uh, a few years back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one all deal with uh, the idea that uh, uh, truth and reconciliation is a beginning, but then there are steps beyond that. Um, and uh, there are land claims to be settled. There are um, all kinds of real-world practicalities uh, involved in re-engaging with uh, the civilization that was here before us. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining that that civilization um, has its own take on technology and uh, uh, economics. Mm-hmm. So these stories explore what happens when um, uh, Canadian uh, settler culture, uh, as we call it, um, uh, runs up against a sophisticated First Nations um, uh, 
technology and uh, civilization and a different way of looking at things like, uh, well, the land itself. Uh, which plays directly into the ravine where the the land itself uh, becomes a character. And uh, beyond the sort of philosophical underpinnings of the story, it, it is still a story, it's still uh, art. And uh, what I kind of liked about yours is uh, it's sort of uh, what's what's old is new again. Uh, it is uh, set in the future, but it has the elements of a, of a film noir kind of story. Uh, you know, uh, it still has that taste of, uh, you know, that, that old sort of... Uh, you know, noir kind of uh, feel. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to write for that reason. And uh, uh, I, I, I confess I had a little tinge of guilt as I was writing it too, of, uh, you know, um, you know, slandering the Italian community by <laughs> positing these Italian gangsters uh, mm-hmm. uh, coming into Toronto. But um, uh, but it was all in fun, and I think uh, people will recognize that. Um, but it's also easier to understand the ideas if you're um, trying to describe something that's very new and very unfamiliar. If you frame it using um, a, a story uh, or a form of story that's traditional and, uh, and familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. So a lot of these stories have a sort of cautionary element about them, uh, you know, when we look 15 years into the future. Is there cause for hope? Uh, when you look at a Toronto, a possible Toronto in the near distant future, uh, are there, you know, is it all bad news? Is it all climate change and pandemics and, uh, you know, the the loss of our individual uh, privacy? Are there things that excite you as a futurist looking forward? Oh, I think there's a lot of potential for, for Toronto. I mean, we, we uh, have an opportunity to um, become a much more walkable uh uh, dense city, uh, which is actually what climate change demands of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not swapping over to electric cars. It's uh, building uh, our buildings closer together, having services within walking distance of people, making it possible uh, for people to get everything they need during the day without having to have a car, whether it's electric or gas. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in this way, density um, density is a feature, not a bug. Um, as to pandemics, uh, well, my colleague Peter Watts uh, uh, made a convincing argument that we'll all be killed off in the next 20 years by uh, mysterious bugs rising from the permafrost of Siberia. Yay. But uh, <laughs> um, assuming that that doesn't happen, um, let me put it this way. Um, uh, I w- was here for SARS, and uh, in fact, my daughter was born in uh, North York Hospital in the middle of the SARS uh, epidemic, and we were quarantined um, mm-hmm. as soon as we got home. Um, and uh, we lived through that. Mm-hmm. People are resilient. Oh, yeah. And you can find these stories and more in the pages of Toronto 2033, available in stores now at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond or online at spacingstore.ca. We gave you a sneak peek of the book at the top of the show with a portion of Vilan Masti's Puck. Also, check out toronto2033.com for more of that good urbanist sci-fi. 
This project is a multimedia storytelling approach, and we'll be adding new stuff in the coming months, so tell your phone to bookmark the page. We'll be back next month when we talk to futurists, activists, and educators about how to predict a city's future. And that is the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your creative writing teacher, your local geneticist, and Siri. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new listeners, so if you have a moment, give it a thought. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, scoops, or harrowing visions of the future, feel free to tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glenbowerman at spacing.ca, that's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, please start taking climate change seriously. Cheers. Cheers.